Welcome, everyone, to what is now Left of Baseball. Yes, this is the reboot inaugural podcast of what was sane and contagious, and in a sudden burst of optimism for which we are known, we have changed it to Left of Baseball. So thanks for joining us. We have, this is Tova Wang. I have the pleasure of introducing the first guest of our inaugural reboot, um, who's a very special person to me because she's a political scientist at Menlo College, and she's also the dean of the Arts and Sciences School. And she had a transformative impact, as I keep telling her, on my thinking about my own work in voting and political engagement when I read her book about 10 years ago called Mobilizing Inclusion, pick it up at bookstore.org. She's written several books since then that are also incredibly interesting. And I want to invite her onto the show because Melissa's work focuses on the role of identity in politics, and she'll explain it better than I do, but a lot of her work centers on the role identity plays in mobilizing people to vote, in mobilizing them to hold certain political and cultural opinions. And she's looked at this particularly with respect to Latinos, which is, of course, great interest to us. And we've talked a lot on this show about the identity that fans have, the identity I have as a Yankee fan, or Lincoln has some kind of split identity, I guess, with the Giants and the Yankees. And then that means something. Um, And so we thought it'd be really interesting to have her on to talk about her work and talk about how this this also applies to to sports and to fans and to baseball. So I'm going to ask Melissa to start us off by talking about the work that she's done, not related to to sports, but about identity and politics and voting and mobilization. Thanks for that introduction, Tova. The book that you're talking about, the Mobilizing Inclusion book, is all about how one of the identities that people can have is as a voter. If you do identify as a voter, then logically, every time there's an election, you think, oh, voters participate in elections. So I'm a voter, I'm going to go vote. And they don't necessarily need to be mobilized. So the key is not necessarily to always be getting people out to vote, but encouraging them to adopt this voter identity. And we showed through our work, through a series of 268 randomized experiments with voters in California over a period of years that you can do that, that there's this lasting effect of getting somebody to behave as a voter and then they adopt the identity as a voter and they continue to vote even if you don't reach out to them again. It's a powerful identity that you can add to the identities you already have. And in my more recent work, which is about persuasion and political communication, my collaborators and I are using identity as a way to connect to people. And so, for example, if somebody does identify as, say, a fan of the Yankees, if you can connect with them by saying like, hey, you know, I'm a Yankees fan too, we're part of the same group, that person is then more likely to listen to you. And if they're getting political communication, persuasive communication from somebody with whom they share a powerful identity, that opens their mind to process persuasive messages and nudge them to rethink those attitudes and behaviors in order to conform with what they see as this is what people with this identity do, right? So again, it's can you get people to think about that identity and then think, okay, well, because I identify as a Yankee fan or as a voter, logically, then these are the attitudes I have. These are the behaviors that I'm going to engaging. 
Can you talk a little bit about the work that I know you've done a lot of experiments with respect to Latino voters and Latino identity as well? And since we talk about Latinos in baseball a lot, I think that would be interesting. A lot of my get out the vote experiments have been focused particularly on getting out the Latino vote. And some of that work has shown pretty clearly that for Latinos who have a strong Latino identity, priming that identity works pretty powerfully. So Ali Valenzuela at Princeton and I did some experiments in California and Texas, where we reached out to Latinos who live in what we would think of as like an ethnic enclave, where people have a very strong Latino identity and a positive Latino identity. So in California, that was East Los Angeles. And then we also reached out to Latinos who lived in a majority Latino neighborhood, but who maybe had a more stigmatized Latino identity, maybe identified more as white. And in LA, that was Montebello. And then we randomized whether we reached out to them with the control message, the placebo message, which was, please recycle. The Latino message, which was, hey, I'm reaching out to you with the Latino Voter Project to encourage you to vote, or I'm reaching out to you as the American Voter Project because Americans need to vote. And we found that for Latinos with a strong Latino identity who you know, were in East LA, who had been in the United States for uh, less time or who were immigrants, who spoke Spanish at home, the Latino message was far more powerful. Whereas Latinos who identified more as Americans through our various proxy measures for them, the American message was more powerful. And, and then we did it again in Texas. And, and so it's an example of how for people for whom Latino identity is important, saying, hey, Latinos, we got to vote to give Latinos a vote. Like, this is what Latinos are doing. That can be really persuasive. That's such an interesting psychological phenomenon. And we do all carry different identities. We've probably spoken more about our identities on this podcast than we should have at times. But I'm just going to ask one more question before inviting everyone else to join in, which is, I mean, this is a fascinating psychological phenomenon. And is it just, is it that if you see someone as sharing something that is close to your heart, you are more open to what they are saying, or they, or you assume that they must be making good choices? I think what is happening most of the time, and you know, who knows, this could vary based on different people, but if they think, oh, what Latinos are doing is voting and probably, you know, voting for the Democrat and I'm Latino and it's important to me that I'm Latino and I want to assert that identity. I want to cement my membership, like to say, yes, I am Latino and assert that membership and feed their self-esteem and feel good about themselves because they're part of this group then they're going to want to conform with what they see as this is what people with my identity are doing. So it has to be seen as something that is credible. Like you can't send a message and just because it's somebody from your shared identity group, it's going to be persuasive because if it's like, no, that's ridiculous. Nobody in our group thinks that nobody in our group does that not listening. Right. But if it's, yeah, that is what we're doing. And I'm a member of that group and I want to feel good about myself and cementing and asserting my membership in that group makes me feel good about myself, then they're going to be 
encouraged to do whatever, to change their attitudes, to change their behavior, to vote, to show up to an event, et cetera. So it's, it's all about maintaining your self-esteem and a positive self-image. And the way we do that psychologically as humans is by being members of groups, right? We're, we're very tribal and it makes us feel good to belong, right? So this is, this is all stuff that social psychologists and folks like Tocqueville have been talking about for centuries. It's nothing new, but my work with my colleagues has been bringing it into these important modern political issues like getting out the vote or persuading people to change their minds. I guess in some ways, identities can lead people to act in ways that we would not like to see. You are focused on the positive ways in which people can be moved to do all good things. Brian Harrison and I have done a whole bunch of work in nudging people to be more supportive of LGBTQ rights. And sometimes when we make presentations, people say, well, have you tried to do the opposite? And we're like, why would we do that? But yes, of course, you can use this same psychological tool, this same persuasion tool to nudge people to do things that I personally would find abhorrent or poor choices. But I'm personally not doing those experiments. I'll let somebody else go do those. Um, I'm trying to push that arc of justice to the left. But yes, of course. And we see this, say, among you know, vaccine deniers or conservatives on other issues where people are encouraged to do things because of their identity as Republicans, as Trumpers, as whatever. One thing that, that strikes me, and I've thought about this with regards to my political work and also campaign work for, for a number of years, is that you can change people's opinions. You can have a rational conversation and say, listen, your views on guns, I know where you're coming from, but at the end of the day, maybe we should think about it this way. That's not easy to do, but it's doable. It's much, much harder to change someone's identity, right? And I think what's happened in American politics, and I'm going to bring this back to baseball in a second, but what's what's happened in American politics is that people have identities. I'm a MAGA dude. I'm I'm a resistance person. And from that identity, I mean, I think back to my, my late father who, you know, my father was left of center his whole life and was not someone who was deeply involved in LGBT equality movements. Uh, he was, you know, a straight old white dude. I mean, by the time he died, he was an old dude. And but for him, by the time he was in his 70s and 80s, he was totally for LGBT equality, marriage equality, all those things, because that was his identity as a left person. And similarly, we see that there are plenty of, I mean, your views on the marginal tax rate should have nothing to do with your views on taking a vaccination. But once you change from, I'm somebody who believes in low taxes to I'm a MAGA dude, boom, you're in for the, for the anti-vaxxers. What strikes me about, to bring it to baseball, just for a moment, is that some of these identities, I you know, I can't identify as a Latino. I mean, I suppose I could, but it would be very strange. It's frowned upon. It's frowned upon. No, it's frowned upon, but I wouldn't really know how. I don't speak Spanish. I don't know how to tell the stories. Well, it's not a requirement. Okay, so I think we could agree as a starting point that I couldn't choose to become Latino. I don't, I mean, it's it's not who I am. But we do choose to be baseball fans, right? And we do choose to be fans of a team. And mostly it's handed down. I mean, I told my kid, my son came home once from school just to get me upset. And he said, I'm going to be a Red Sox fan. And I said, that's fine. Maybe David Ortiz can pay for your college education, right? This was a few years ago. But we choose the degree of identity. And and sometimes we do choose a team. And often it is because we want to identify with the place that we're from. So if you are a fan of your team and you're living in the diaspora, 
right? It's a way to be a little bit of a San Franciscan in my case, even though I live in New York, right? And if you're from Toronto and you're working, you know, in Texas, because that's where your job takes you, it's a little bit of how you might identify as a Canadian and a resident of a person who's from Toronto. I don't know what the word is there. So that, that strikes me as a kind of interesting thing. These are kind of selected identities, but then they lock in. Then they lock in. And I mean, I think of a friend of mine who is, uh, you know, in his 70s now and goes back to the Mickey Mantle days of rooting for, you know, Mantle and Berra on the Yankees. And he cannot, he can become a Red Sox fan as easily as I can become Japanese, right? I mean, it's just, it can't, it, it's, it becomes that immutable. It's something you opt into, but it becomes very immutable. Yeah. And I think the important thing about fan identities, baseball fan identities, football fan identities, other sports fan identities is that they cross over these polarized lines that we have now between progressives and MAGA heads or whatever we're calling them. And that's why some of the work that I've done and that other people are doing where they're using sports fan identity to nudge people to think about things a different way or maybe change their attitudes are so intriguing because both Democrats and Republicans love baseball. And so it's a, it's a subordinate identity to use um, Willie, Willie Mason's term, right? That you can appeal to people's superordinate identities as say Yankees fans to get them to reconsider their attitudes. It's hard right now because the polarization is so stark but I don't think it's impossible because as you note, these are, these are immutable, deeply held identities. And are you really going to give up that fan identity because you're a MAGA head? You know, what, what is more important to you? They claim they will. They claim they will. I, I do, I'm a baseball writer and I write about a lot of where politics intersects with baseball and um, it's routine. If you're, on baseball social media or in fan forums or things like that, if say, you know, the Mudville Nine decide to have LGBTQ night, uh, a bunch of people say, "Well, I'm no longer going to be a fan of that team." Now, a lot of that I think is performative. Um, there are a lot of people I've like the same person I've seen many times say they have totally given up the NFL because they can't stand it anymore. Um, but I, I do wonder what's stronger. Uh, because sometimes the political views are, are newer than their sports views. For example, you could be your dad made you a Red Sox fan, uh, but then when you went to college, you became a liberal. And uh, at some point, uh, the, the Red Sox do something that is uh, leaning terribly conservative or, or promoting some group or some politician or something. And, and then you have these things come head to head. And I wonder, have you, has there been work done? I, I'm writing a book on fandom, but I haven't gone this deep into it. But um is there work done on, you know, what happens when those things meet? Uh, what What is the priority? What is the order of operations for deciding what's going to give? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I don't know if anybody's looking at that, but it certainly is something that somebody could study. Because, for example, when it's Pride Night at Giant Stadium, do, do you, as a Giants fan, just not go? And try to ignore that? Or does it nudge you if you somehow live in San Francisco and you are still anti-gay rights to reconsider your position? I mean, San Francisco is probably the worst place to try to, to test that. Maybe Boston would be better. But it would be interesting to know how people react. Because if you have conflicting identities 
pulling at you in these directions, what does it take to move you over? Is it that the team is making a clear stance in favor of gay rights? Is it that your fellow fans that you hang out with at the sports bar suddenly start talking about gay rights? Is it a statement from the team manager? What does it take to pull you away and think, this is the thing that I have to do if I'm going to keep being a fan. And for, and it's probably not for the same for everyone, right? Some people probably just say, well, screw it then. I'm going to go root for this other team. And some people say, okay, well, I love baseball. So, and I love this team. So I guess I'm, you know, maybe I'll think about it. Maybe, maybe I'm okay with gay rights. Gay Pride Nights is such a perfect example to work with on this. That is such an interesting thing. I mean, so we always have um, some inner turmoil because we know that the teams that we root for are usually owned by white Republican billionaires and who, who give campaign money to all sorts of hateful people. And yet, and yet, <laughs> somehow I'm able to split that off in my mind, because it's just, it's so close to my heart. I can, you know, I, I can't, you know, and we, we talk a lot about on this podcast, all the things that we don't like about baseball and the direction it's going in. And that I, I don't, I can't imagine ever not being a baseball fan. I, I think Craig is right. People say I'm done with the giants because they're too left wing because Sergio Romo wear that, wore that shirt that said, I only look illegal and Tim Lincecum's against a pot smoking hippie, but they don't really mean that. But there are different ways to approach being a baseball fan. And that's what strikes me is that and we see this, you know, I mean, there was this is getting a little bit in the weeds, but we are that kind of a show. But the Jack Morris, Burt Blylevin Hall of Fame controversy was not about who was the better pitcher. You can't make a serious argument that Jack Morris was a better pitcher than Burt Blylevin. It was about how you wanted to think about baseball. And you see this all the time when people say these players today, you know, Fernando Tatis Jr., you know, Joe Cronin was better, but Phil Rizzuto was better. That's not a serious, I mean, you can't, that's just absurd on the face of it. But it's a way, it's, it, there's a racial subtext. There's a subtext in the Blylevin Morris case. It's an anti-intellectual subtext. So that's where I think the politics play out in baseball, as opposed to, you know, I'm a Yankees fan because I like, you know, this, and I'm a Red Sox fan because I'm progressive. That That seems much less likely. Well, I, I though I guess the idea though is what you know that's like Lincoln just said. There's a generational thing involved. There's anti-intellectual education level. There's you know what your what your pursuit is, and and taking it back to your research, um, the idea that you you mentioned at the outset, if you're going to uh, appeal to someone because of their Latino identity as opposed to their American identity, as opposed to you know the generic issues that you mentioned. Um, I guess I'm more. I'm curious about the markers that you mentioned. I mean, is, I'm sure there's a series of, like any social science research, there's a series of questions and the ways you identify. But you have to sort of pick it for yourself, right? You have to sort of. They have to give you a tell in some way, and we find that in sports fandom, if you talk to somebody long enough, you kind of get where they're coming from, whether or not they're that sort of person, whether they're this sort of person. I I just find that fascinating. Like whether you're wrong sometimes about that. Yeah. Well, with that research with Dr. Valenzuela, we were specifically looking with for, for markers that we could find in public records. 
So we were using census data and voter registration data from the, the voter files, because if we had had to survey people beforehand to figure out, hey, which identity is going to work for you, that is cost prohibitive um, and also just you know not very useful if we're saying to people, hey, here's some information that might help you get at the Latino vote. So people we were probably unreliable narrators of their own experience as well. <laughs> Right. But I think anybody who's active in politics and especially, you know, community organizing or just meeting with lawmakers, the key is always figuring out what their tell is or what the connection is. Right. So if you walk into their office and they've got a, a Yankees baseball cap or a Giants bobblehead on the shelf that, you know, that's your in. And you're like, hey, how about them Giants? Like, that's how you make connections with people and everybody in politics, I hope everybody in politics knows that that's how you're supposed to do it, right? And so at, on a one-to-one -one level, when you're engaging in persuasive communication, you are doing that. But what my work is is doing more often is, is looking for ways to identify identity groups and nudge them based on those identities without having to have a, right? Because that's very inefficient and that's hard to scale up. You know, you can't, that's not helpful for the community organizations that I'm working with. They don't have that, those kind of resources. Last week, I think it was, maybe it was even previously, there was this incident in uh, at City Field where the New York Mets play, where one of the Puerto Rican players, Javier Baez, gave the fans a thumb down after he did something on the field because they had been booing him and others. And it brought to my mind a, a particular aspect about fan identity. Baez was critical of the Mets fans for booing the team when they were going through a hard spell. And I was just asked yesterday when I was talking with some of my students about protests and athletes. And this really interesting dynamic where do fans identify with the players, the much more diverse group of players than with ownership? You know, and, and it's almost like there's your team, but some, but some folks don't separate the team from the owner. You know, the, the owner represents the team um, and there's the players. And, they, they're you know, so I was trying to think, like, is there a parallel for you in the research you're doing and thinking about how people are identifying and, and teasing out kind of their politics and who they identify with? I think that's a really interesting question. And I don't know if you and your students talked about what happened in... At, uh, in Georgia with Kelly Leffler and her WNBA team. I think that's a perfect example of the owner is over here on one side and the players are here very clearly, you know, wearing t-shirts on the other side and asking voters, who do you actually identify with? And I'm not a big sports fan, so I don't know. I have to imagine that for most people, it's the players. They're the ones you're showing up to watch. Did, right? Tova wouldn't be able to be a Yankees fan if she identified with the owners because the owner is a, a white male billionaire. Bob Lurie, who is being honored on Saturday the 18th in San Francisco, owned the team for about 17 years and, and saved them from, from moving to Toronto. And Lurie is now in his early 90s. So he's a sign of Louis Lurie's son, very wealthy Bay Area family. And uh, he was about five or 10 years ago, he was enshrined in the, in the Bay Area Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. And, and at that, the person who gave the speech was Corey Bush, who had been kind of Lurie's right-hand man. Corey is also Jewish, but from L.A. and, and 
moved to the Bay Area in the 70s. And and Corey in that speech, and this is just about who you identify with, said there comes a time in every young Jewish boy's life when you realize you have a better chance of owning the team than playing center field for the team. <laughs> it's it's interesting you mentioned that, though, Lincoln. There, there's, there's a real dynamic in that in baseball fandom. Um, there was a time when people a little bit older than us, if you asked them what you wanted to be, well, you wanted to play center field for the New York Yankees. And then sometime, and I think a lot of this has to do with the advent of fantasy baseball, with uh, online forums, with uh, sabermetrics, people now identify themselves with the team building aspects. Video games are big for this too. Now, now you identify with the general manager. And increasingly, as we are more literate with the, mm. with the economics of baseball, uh, people are, are identifying themselves with, with ownership and with, with franchises and with side business and things like that because of the information that is at our disposal. Um, and I really do think there's a generation that has grown up of thinking, I don't want to be the center fielder for the New York Yankees. I want to be the president of baseball operations. And Theo Epstein. All, all, all Jewish kids want to be Theo Epstein now. I think we should clarify, in case the Steinbrenners are listening, I still have my glove downstairs and I live a few subway stops away. And if they do need a center fielder for the last couple of weeks, I will, uh, I'll do it. I'm in. All the Boston Red Sox fans are very excited by that prospect. Probably there are some superstars on various teams that people identify with regardless. And for other people, it's more that they just are a fan of the team. And so they identify with the franchise, with the owner, with the general manager. I don't know how you would know that in advance, right? If you were thinking about, well, how do I actually implement this and use fandom as a means of nudging people with persuasive communication. If somebody who knows more about sports would have to figure that out for y'all, but it does seem like both kinds of messengers might be persuasive in for different groups of people. And so, I mean, we, we talk about that there aren't a lot of celebrities almost by design in MLB compared to other sports leagues, but there are a few. And is it, is it that, you know, Mookie Betts takes a knee or, or whatever and, I mean, presumably the people for who are huge fans of his, I mean, might already share his politics. But for somebody who didn't, would that be somewhat, I mean, that would be meaningful to them in some way because of their admiration for him? Yes. That's what my research would show, is that if you have a strong connection to that person and you feel like, I share an identity with this person as a fan of the team, and this is somebody on the team who I see as symbolic of that team and and is I want to cement my fandom, I want to cement my identity as a fan of this person and this team, then you would be open to the communication. It doesn't mean that the communication makes you flip from being a progressive to a MAGA head or vice versa, right? It's the analogy I like to use is you've got a little boat on the edge of the lake and you're giving it a nudge toward the other shore. And it takes a lot of nudges to, to change somebody's opinion, but if they get enough nudges, they do change their attitudes. They do change their behavior. And, and that could be a pretty powerful little nudge if it's somebody like a fan, like a superstar on a team that you're a huge fan of. I'm, I wonder about that. I mean, I think that, for example, I'm thinking of Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays, who were kind of among that first generation of, of African-American players. Robinson, of course, was the, the, the real trailblazer. But Mays was a bigger star 
uh, and and played longer because he you know he's able to start younger. And I think there are a lot of people who thought about race differently, but I don't know that it stuck that it took. I don't know how far that boat got out on the shore. A lot of people who and and then a lot of people there's that scene in uh, in Do the Right Thing, right? How come you 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 there's all these Spike Lee says to John Turturro, I'm paraphrasing. There's all these African American figures who you who you, with whom you are impressed as a star, but you're still a racist, and and that's you know I so so, so I don't want to be too Pollyannish about that. That that seems to me to be, it's 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 still tough. Right. So what's hap- What I would say is happening there is, say you're a racist, but you love Willie Mays or you love Jackie Robinson, you've decided that those individual baseball players are not representative of black people. Those are the exceptional black people. Those are the few good black people. And everyone else it's okay to still be biased against. So it ha- so so it would be more like if you saw that all of baseball was embracing black players and was saying, "Hey, we're going to cut it out with this racism bullshit and we're going to enjoy having black players on our teams because they're awesome at baseball. Then because you identify with the other white people who you then see as changing their attitudes, you might be nudged, but you don't identify with the one black person because you think, you know, that's the unicorn black person. And Adrian, that's, I mean, would you say that's the case historically and and in the present day with respect to Latino players as well? Well, again, just two days ago was, um, was Roberto Clemente day. Right. And, we saw MLB celebrating um, the presence of Roberto Clemente and his impact on the game. But oftentimes the discussion of the vocal Clemente, the critiques that he had of the, of the sporting press, of, of politics in this country that does not take care of poor people, that disrespects immigrants, you know, those things, you know, they talk about his philanthropy, but they don't talk about his political vocal presence. And so when you bring that to the modern era, which was total was partly what you're asking, is thinking about when current players, Latino players speak out, how do fans react? And that's part of the reason why I brought up, you know, it wasn't a political statement per se that Javier Baez was doing, but he was presenting a player's view on fandom at a particular moment in New York. And the owner of the team, got on social media and criticized. The team put a PR uh, release about how, you know, he, that bias was wrong. And I think these things are interconnected about when Latinos speak, how do people actually respond? I think that moment was so interesting. And as a, I'd been at uh, City Field the week before for a few games and uh, I was very happy with the way Javi Baez played because I was rooting for the other team, but um and but it really struck me because on the one hand, there obviously was this enormous racial component to this. On the other hand, there's this dynamic which we haven't explored, and it's not really the topic of this show. But fans are what make are what make the absurd, the like extraordinary skill set that someone like a hobby Baez has valuable, right? That's the economic engine. Otherwise, it's just some quirky thing like being able to juggle six objects or something, right? But fans are voiceless. Right, the no one, they they they're stakeholders without a seat at the table, and so they they they're stuck communicating with very blunt instruments, booing, cheering, 
not going, but not following baseball. I mean, I mean, my relationship with baseball is an addiction. I think if I think most mental health professionals would call it that. Matter of fact, I wrote about this in my first book. My late brother's psychiatrist, who was a, a refusenik from Latvia, having lunch with us once, I said, "You must think my brother and I are completely obsessed with baseball." And in a very clinical tone, he said, "Yes, you are." Um, so I can't not go. So so fans have very few tools and are voiceless and do have the sense of the game's not working for us anymore. So you take it out. I mean, there was that wonderful moment in 1982, and I'll stop talking, when at Yankee Stadium, the whole fan erupted, the whole uh, stadium erupted in the cheer of Steinbrenner sucks when Reggie Jackson hit a home run. But that doesn't happen enough. I mean, Craig, you're writing your own book that covers a lot of these topics, um, including what, what Lincoln just referred to about the fans not having a voice or a seat at the table. They don't. Um, and and the whole point of my book is going to fly in the face of almost all of the psychological literature and everything else is I'm, I'm making an argument that we don't have to uh, we don't have to be that kind of fan <laughs> um, that you could choose a different way to to consume sports. Um, and uh, I I don't think that it's going to be well received as far as, oh yeah, that's a great idea, but I'm trying to get people to think of it in a different way. Well, so are you um, saying that it's bad that I my identity is as wrapped up in baseball as it is? No, no, not at all. Um, I think the, the psychological literature and everything else, the, the social science shows that being a sports fan and having a devotion to sports is actually a healthy thing on net. Um, most people who identify as sports fans uh, just sort of, have better markers for, you know, being well-adjusted and happy. Um, and it's not even about toxic fandom. My thing is that because we're so obsessed and because we're addicted, to use Lincoln's term, uh, we are very easily taken advantage of by those people that don't care about sports in the same way we do. And unfortunately, those people own the sports teams and run the sports leagues and run the networks and are politicians who have say on things that relate to sports. And that our, you know, we, we are addicts that are being taken ad advantage of. And what can we do about that to limit the ability for them to take advantage of us? Um, so it's the book, I guess, probably is best thought of as uh, a survival guide to, uh, to dealing with your, to dealing with our sports addiction. I don't think there's really a great answer to it, though, other than try to think less about teams, root more for players. Uh, it's okay to be a Fairweather fan if you want to. It's okay to walk away for a while and come back and be a casual fan. Changing allegiances is so frowned upon. I mean... Well, let, well, let me ask. I mean, uh, we there are a lot of people that grow up and they grew up with their parents who were Republicans and they became Democrats. And we don't think that's crazy. And a lot of people who don't listen to the same music they listened to when they were younger. We don't think that's crazy. Those are all still emotional-based sort of pursuits. Um, I, I'm a weirdo in that I switched in the middle of my life, not the middle of my life, but in the middle of my childhood from being a fan of one team to being a fan of another because I moved. Yeah, but no, what, after um, childhood, okay, yeah, I'll leave children out of this. But as an adult? How many, people, how many people do you know that went to college in Boston and all of a sudden they're the biggest Red Sox fans? Oh, my God. That is true. That's absolutely true. Okay, well, that's different. I mean, I, tell, I teach at Columbia, and I tell my students if, if someone's wearing a Red Sox hat, 
and, and they're from New England, it's an accident of birth. If they're not, it's just their way of telling you they went to Harvard, right? That's an exception. But somebody, if, if you're from a National League town, you grew up in Pittsburgh, and you end up in Southern California, to me, it's totally reasonable to become an Angel fan. It's not reasonable to become a Phillies fan. I was raised as a Yankees fan, by, by Yankees fans. My mother's a second generation Yankees fan. My grandfather moved to the Bronx around the time the Yankees did, you know, from the Lower East Side of Manhattan. But my mother uh, had the sense to encourage, I mean, she was a single mom with, let's just say, charitably speaking, a lot on her plate. Let's put it this way. I was the easier of the two kids. And, and, and she just, you know, and, and she realized it, and she, there was no father around. Our father was, wasn't around. Go become a Giants fan. That gives you something to talk about with these other kids. And, and that was a really smart thing. And, and now, you know, she's been in San Francisco. She remains there. She, like, will call me probably during this podcast because the Giants lost the last two games and she's concerned. And if they don't make it to the World Series, it's my fault. I mean, I so I did move to Washington, D.C. I moved to Washington, D.C. in my 30s. And, I mean, I probably became more of a Yankee fan. I would know. Well, first of all, the Nationals are their own case because it's a very new team, basically. And I, I find I don't even I'm not even sure that Nats fans have an identity yet, which is one of the weird things. But I mean, that was I, I, probably I don't know to differentiate myself or to I, probably to assert my New York identity to say that I am no matter what I might live in D.C., but I am a New York. Maybe it's that I don't know. But it could have gone either way. If you had moved to San Francisco and everyone around you was a big Giants fan, maybe you would have become a Giants fan because now. No, no, okay, I would not. I know, okay, okay. <laughs> not you. When I was growing up in San Francisco, I was a much bigger Yankees fan than I am. I mean, I was, I think, particularly for New Yorkers, when they leave the city, holding on to that Mets or Yankees thing, it's often tied to an, to being part of an ethnic group that is not that, that frequent. I mean, I remember going to, I don't really speak Spanish. I studied French, Chinese, and Russian. But I remember going to Yankees A's games, and the Spanish and the bleachers sounded different than the Spanish in the Mission District, right? And the reason was it was Puerto Ricans mostly at the Yankees game, right? I heard more Yiddish spoken at the bleachers of Yankee of oh, the Oakland Coliseum. I'm not exaggerating than I did anywhere in San Francisco besides my house growing up, right? So for New Yorkers, when you leave, it becomes a way to hold on to that identity. Also, New York, like San Francisco, is a place that you're proud to be from. A lot of people you know, have the experience of, as young adults, moving to somewhere cooler. You can't do that if you're from New York or San Francisco. So you hold on to that identity. Now we hit the sweet spot. <laughs> so being so, what you're saying is, Lincoln, being from Flint, Michigan and growing up in West Virginia, that I was just going to be a, a, a person who changes their allegiances. When was... Well, well, my my wife is from Flint, Michigan. So I have some I have some connection to Flint. And she grew up, you know, peripherally a Tigers fan. But her father, who probably paid more attention to sports, has now moved to Florida as as, you know, not unusual for an octogenarian. And he they're Rays fans. So there are no such thing as race fans. I mean, they're not race fans, but if the race beat the Yankees, I get like a text. Ha ha. Right. So really, these identities are all about trolling you because you're no, getting the, the message. That's the Republican Party you're thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it, it does, whether you hold on to that being a fan, even if you're from Pittsburgh or somewhere like that, it is it is. It is a way of holding on to something about your past, right? Maybe it is. It's a way to think back to your childhood, where you grew up, the family that raised you. So even if you move to L.A., you don't become a Dodgers or an Angels fan. And it just depends on what that experience is. You know, people also have a different intensity with their relationship to sports. So 
I moved to LA and I got into baseball. So although I was raised an Indians fan, I became a Dodgers fan. So, but Adrian, you're a Yankees fan too, but you don't act like one as much as Lincoln as I do. Well, yeah. And for me, you know, part of that is because I'm Puerto Rican, New Yorican. I'm a Latino. And I was raised by baseball-loving mom and grandmas who, and one of them in particular said, you know, that I root, she was a Yankees fan, but she also roots for the team that had the most Latinos on it. And that, I think, shaped part of my identity. And even more so now, you know, understanding kind of the growth of the presence of Latinos. In the 60s, there were about 10% of Major League Baseball players were Latinos. Now it's over a quarter of them. Sometimes nearly a third of MLB players are of Latino descent. So, like, we look at the game differently, culturally differently. And what was interesting, other than Artie Moreno, you know, it's like, my reality and my thinking was always, I'm more likely to be a player than I ever will be an owner. But Lincoln did note that there's this whole other, and I think Craig pointed to this as well, this whole other level of identification, and that is of with management. I can own a fantasy team. I can run a baseball team. I can identify with that. And, you know, that to me is like, again, there's levels of identity with that. Not too many Latino and African-American executives in MLB front offices. A lot more whites. It's not the same thing as on the playing field. Melissa, can I ask you a question? Um, in sports, we often refer to this as rooting for laundry. And, and in some ways, when you're rooting for a team, you're not rooting for any individual players because they come and go. You're rooting for the pinstripes and you're rooting for the history and you're rooting for what, you know, there, there's a difference, as Lincoln has mentioned many times and as Tovez as well, any, all of you from New York have mentioned, there's a big difference between Yankees fans and Mets fans and what used to be Giants fans in New York. Um, and so there's a culture that surrounds it um, that you could just sort of look at. In, in politics, I, I get the sense that there's that same sort of deal. And increasingly, as as politics has sort of become almost more like sports in certain ways, as we identify with our team as opposed to our group of, uh, of you know, policy preferences and things like that. Um, and, and it's now becoming almost simple. We, a red hat with, a, with white letters on it is almost like a baseball cap. Is, is that stronger than, than, you know, going down a list of, of policy preferences? Is that something that's really moved to the fore? Yeah, one of I think un, one of the unfortunate effects that we've seen in recent years of this increased polarization is, and it it has always been true, right? So to be clear, it has always been true that people have been willing sometimes to change their policy preferences based on which politician or which political party is saying what. So you could, right, there are these famous experiments where you could say, do you support position X? Bill Clinton said it versus do you support position X? Rick Perry said it. And people changed their response to the policy idea based on whether it was from somebody from their own party promoting it or not. I think that has become much stronger. And now there's this orthodoxy that's being enforced that, I mean, especially among the, the MAGA heads, that if you're not with us, you're against us. If you're on Team Trump, you have to believe all these things. And just here in California, we just had this recall election where Larry Elder rose to 
the front of the pack of the Republican potential replacements because he was the one who was the most Trumpy. And so that has become the Republican Party. And you can't be a Republican and get any kind of support any other way, even if you are, you know, Kevin Falconer or somebody else who normally would be seen as somebody who has a chance of winning, is more moderate, is more acceptable to more Californians. I think people are changing their attitudes to conform. And then um, I don't know that it's so much about the Republican label right now as it is about the Trump label on the, on the conservative side. But for Democrats as well, right? We, the reason we get so many media stories about, oh, de- Democrats in disarray, oh, the moderates versus the progressives, what are we going to do about Joe Manchin? That's because he's not conforming to the Democratic platform. Well, but 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 to take to take their policy out of it for a second, I mean, I, I voted for Barack Obama every time I could. Right. I gave him money early on. I was a big supporter. But I find it weird that at the end of the year, there's a list that circulates on the Internet. of The books Barack Obama recommends the movies like that's weird. That's about I want to be on my team. I have to read these books. That is weird. And I say that as as an Obama loyalist. But that's, he picks good that's books part of and good music too. Actually, it doesn't. But there's a lot of good books and music out there. It's a branding thing. It's a branding thing. If I want to be a real Obama guy, I got to read these ten books, which means I got to buy ten more new books. Well, the thing I think what I think what really drove me over the edge on this was uh, I think it was the. I can't remember which primary it was twenty. It, well, no, the conventions. It was like the twenty sixteen Republican convention or whatever. I live in Ohio, and in Columbus, Ohio, the Ohio State Buckeyes are this, you know, obviously huge thing. And there's this guy who calls himself Buckeye Man. He's a super fan. He wears a cowboy hat with rhinestones on it. He he wears weird face paint, and he has like this thing with fringes. And he's he's Buckeye guy. Okay. At the 2016 Republican convention, there was a famous picture of a woman sort of yelling like this, and she had a cowboy hat with American flags, and she had these weird face paints. And I put the two pictures together. They're exactly the same thing. They're both rooting for a team in in the most tribal of ways, and they're identifying themselves this way. And I'm finding it almost indistinguishable now. Political identity has become sports identity. Well, it works to rile people up, right? Sports fandom, as you all know, is super powerful really motivates people. Everybody hates politics, but if politics feels more like sports and it feels more like you're rooting for your team, it makes sense to me that politicians and political parties would want to encourage that sort of super fandom for your political party, because then you have that warm, fuzzy glow when your team's doing good and you give money because you want to cement your loyalty to your team and you go out and you vote and you do all the things that your team is asking you to do. It's a way to get people to do what you want so that you can win.
Yeah. Yeah. 